for example, I mean, just to give you a few ideas, in, in our work on regional standardization of data on femicide, if we are thinking only on binary categories, we are making some population invisible. So if the transgender women didn't previously access legal change of their ID, it might be difficult and this depends on, on, on the cultural context of the country. Some countries that might be easier than in others, but remember that in many cases we are working in, in Latin America, so the, the, the contexts are particularly different from country to country. So if that crime, I mean, or that person, is not included in the categories, probably we can quantify that as a gender-based homicide. So if we are not adding that, probably what we are doing is we are making this person and this victim invisible. Welcome back to the DFN Podcast. I'm your host, Ali. Today's guest is the brilliant Silvana Fumega. Silvana is currently the research and policy lead of the Latin American Initiative for Open Data, also known as ILDA or ILDA, where she works to promote data publishing and the ethical use of data. In the past few years, she has focused her work on open government data and freedom of information policies. I was first introduced to Silvana's work while reading Data Feminism by Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren F. Klein, as the work of her and her team heavily informs chapter two of the book. A few months ago, I came across one of Silvana's articles about data for inclusion, and I thought it would be a great topic to dive deeper into in this episode. We'll be sure to link that article in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's get right into it. Silvana, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you for the invitation. Why don't we start by just telling me a bit about the work you do at ILDA? First of all, uh, ILDA is an international inclusive organization that tries to contribute to generate and use evidence to think about some of the most relevant problems in Latin America based especially on the ethical use of data. We were born around 2012 as a research project in collaboration with Avina Foundation and the Development Research Center of Canada, IDRC. And in 2018, we became uh, an international civil association under Uruguayan jurisdiction, but we are remote, a remote team. I'm currently based in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, we are also having people in Costa Rica, in Mexico, and because we are now leading the global data barometer, there's people all around the world also working with us. In general, we have several lines of work, but I think the one that we are going to focus today is about uh, data for equality and inclusion. And in that sense, I mean, first of all, I mean, I'd like to say why we are working on this line of, of work and, and why we think it's important. Because mostly when we speak of data, uh, we refer to how algorithms use it and the standards and legal frameworks that shape its production. But also data is the basis for designing policies, tools that try to solve at least public problems. So in that sense, if we don't use the right categories to understand why we are collecting the data, we won't be collecting the, the right data. And without it, uh, probably designing policies that offer solutions to diverse group of people is gonna be incredible, incredibly difficult. So in that line of work, uh, we have several projects. One of those is the one that you mentioned about regional standardization of feminicide data. There's also, I mean, together with that project, we started a collaboration with the Data Plus Feminism Lab of MIT, 
where Catherine is working, and Feminicide Uruguay. And that project is Data Against Feminicide. And later, if you want, I can share the link with you because we have resources in Spanish and Portuguese, but also in English. So the idea was to translate everything. So we try to reach the larger number of people that, that we can, that are working, are interested in, in talking about uh, data on feminicide. Also, we, we used to work in women and inclusion of women in public contracting. And also we are now supporting uh, new researchers working on different topics. For example, data on LGBTQ people in Central America, data on migration. Also another research is the feminist approach approach to share spatial data. And as I mentioned, we are currently in charge of the Global Data Barometer, it's, it's pilot edition. So we are just starting to collect the data from more than 100 countries. And in that sense, I mean, one of the things, I mean, besides collecting data on many topics, we also would like to know about some, some information about marginalized groups that we know are completely different from country to country. So we know we want to know a little bit more about that. And we also ask a few questions related to gender, for example, regarding land data use and impact. So there are all different projects that have been implemented with, with different experts and organizations all around the world. But behind all this, the idea is the same. I mean, how we could help to create a more inclusive approach to, to data and to also processes surrounding, so, sorry, surrounding data and, of course, algorithms and standards. So the idea is to think about how we can not only include a few, as we are currently doing in our data and in our tools, but also trying to include all of us. So basically, that's a brief summary. I can go into the details of some of the project, but basically, I, I don't want to keep talking and talking and talking about, about the project. But if you want, I can go into some of them. That's perfect. Thank you, Silvana. So, Silvana, you spoke a little bit about what inclusion in data production looks like. So right now, data represents a select few, when in reality, it should really select everyone as a whole and be representative of the population upon which... Mm -hmm decisions are being made and who are going to be affected by those decisions, especially when it comes to policymaking and programming. One area that is spoken about a lot when it comes to data for inclusion is the danger of having binary data categories. So a, a well-known one is binary sex categories, the dangers of that, but also binary categories such as race, where an individual who might be half Asian and half Black will have to fill out a form and choose between those two identities, whether it be a form in the doctor's office or a form elsewhere. So could you elaborate a little bit on the dangers or consequences rather of having those binary data categories? Yes, yeah, so again, I think the, the idea behind this all is uh, about trying to include as many people as possible. I mean, I'm not just to left uh, some of them outside of our categories and our data just because they don't conform to binary categories, wherever they, they are. So, for example, I mean, and you mentioned that when we are talking about sex disaggregated data, I mean, in general, is the data collected and presented separately on men and women, and it refers to the bio biological differences between males and females. Again, this is a much needed step. However, when you are looking into it, into it, if a person genetically assigned sex does not align uh, with their gender identity, uh, probably in many cases we are leaving them out 
of our data. And if we are leaving them out of our data, in many cases, when talking about public problems, we are leaving them out of the solutions. And, and probably the, the problems that are affecting them are not part of the general discourse of uh, public discourse to, to say in a, in a way. For example, I mean, just to give you a few ideas, in, in our work on regional standardization of data on femicide, if we are thinking only on binary categories, we are making some population invisible. So if a transgender woman didn't previously access legal change of the ID, it might be difficult and this depends on, on, on the cultural context of the country. Some countries that might be easier than in others, but remember that in many cases we are working in, in Latin America, so the, the, the contexts are particularly different from country to country. So if that crime, I mean, or that person, is not included in the categories, probably we can quantify that as a gender-based homicide. So if we are not adding that, probably what we are doing is we are making this person and this victim invisible. And in many cases, I mean, for example, uh, to go to a simpler examples in a way, I mean, just leave outside a feminicide, but uh, as you mentioned, the, 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 the work and the book of Catherine and, and Laura Klein, that goes into things like daily things. I mean, like a, an online user account, even an ID, a bank account, a mailing list. We are only having two options. In many cases, when we are talking about gender is male and female. We are leaving many people outside of many things that we, in general, get for granted, but it's not. So it's important to start thinking and rethinking the way we collect data, how we store it, how we share it, how we ultimate, ultimately reuse it. And in that sense, I mean, it's not only the data, but the standards behind that data that shape that production. And in many cases, what we've seen, for example, again, in the, in the work in, in Latin America in, in terms of feminicide, is that these particular exercises that might look a bit technical, what they are doing is forcing organizations to think and rethink about these processes. In many cases, they are bringing about silence and localized changes in, buro in bureaucracy. So in that sense, it's very important to understand how powerful it is to define or design a standard to produce data or even a framework, because that can really create positive changes within the public sector, but also the people that we are trying to affect with policies, with tech solutions, depending on the, the thing that we are working on. So in that sense, thinking that the world is divided in just binary categories is very limited. And in many cases, we need to broaden up our approach and trying to think about all the countless possibilities that we have uh, in our society. And in that sense, also thinking that probably our worldview is not the one that is shared with everybody else in our country or in the world. So, because uh, I'm, I'm probably I'm just stepping into other questions, but in many cases, uh, we've seen that talking about global things, universal things, and in many cases, they are not. I mean, they belong to the view of some particular groups of a society that in many cases holds a powerful situation or a status. So, thinking about that is going to at least uh, try to see what we are leaving behind and what we can do to make it better. I'm not saying it's going to be easy because in a statistical environment, 
it's pretty difficult to think about outside these categories, especially when we are thinking about gender. But I think we need to make an effort. I mean, there are many ways to, to do that. And without that effort, I mean, it's going to be, again, excluding people. And, and probably in many cases, it's not the, not the situation in, in Canada, because I know there are many initiatives uh, to try to include other people outside male and female. But the situation is not the same all around the world. I'm, I'm not even thinking about Latin America. I'm thinking about the, the world in general. I mean, the, the outlook is not as positive as it might be there. But again, I mean, we need to start somewhere. And I think thinking outside of the box of the world dividing in two, it could be gender, it could be race, it could be whatever it is that could provide some, some help for these people that we are leaving behind. Definitely. And I want to hone in on one word that you used a couple times in those response, in your response there. You said data is powerful. So I want to narrow in on that topic of power. One of the principles mm -hmm. of data feminism highlights that data is a form of power. And sometimes we focus so much on building the technology that we forget to address the new power dynamics that are formed from this data. So a question I have for you is, whose perspectives is the default in society and in our data? And how does power play a role in that? First of all, I mean, in terms of data and power, I think it's important because in many cases, I mean, from what I was saying before, we, we don't register, we don't see, and if we don't see it, probably we are not going to act over that. Whatever it is the problem, it's going to be difficult to act on something that we don't realize is a problem or a population that we don't realize have particular context and particular issues. So having data on that, I mean, it's not enough, definitely. I mean, it's not going to solve the problems, but without knowing that, it's going to be difficult to try to, to think about policies or tech solutions or whatever it is if you don't have that first diagnosis to, to put it in a way. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I, mean, I love the, the, the book Data Feminism, and I think I quote it many times today and any other event that I have. And, and in particular, me, I think this, this question relates to what Catherine and Lauren have written in, in their book, to really think closely to what we think is a default view or default perspective. Because in many cases, this has privileges and again, makes some populations invisible. I mean, it could be in data sets, algorithm visualizations, or whatever it is that we are trying to do. In, if we are talking about the, the tech or data world, in most cases, and I guess you, you know the answer, I mean, it's pretty obvious, the default uh, view is in many cases male, white, global north, and that's usually what we call and what we know so far as the uh, default perspective. Gladly, we are now starting to question ourselves and to see that probably does not a general view and is the view of the people holding some positions of power in different, it could be industries or it could be a society as a whole. So in that case, I think, I mean, uh, we need to think about that uh, because uh, that leads to, to biases and, and biases in terms of data uh, and then data to algorithm and algorithms to decision making and decision making to the, the benefits of the thing that we can really get 
because we belong to a certain demographic or that or the things that we are getting because we belong to a certain demographic. So in a way, I think we need to rethink the way we look at the at the at the world and, and try to rethink about our own biases that we experience in our daily life. It's not just about data. I mean, we, it's something that we experience every day, even though we might not be aware of that. I mean, the, the position of privilege is something that we need to rethink all the time. And it could be related to many things. It could be gender, race, age, class, whatever it is. And the problem is that that could result in different types of discrimination. So again, going back to the data, we, we are discussing nowadays many things about algorithms transparency and so on, but I mean, those algorithms are built over or they are fed by data. So if we are not looking at the data uh, before the algorithm or together with the algorithm, probably the results are gonna have some biases in there. And again, in many cases, it cannot be deleted completely, but just to be aware of the biases is gonna make us think about the solutions that we are providing to certain people or the policies that we are designing. Again, I mean, we, they, they are not gonna vanish again because we, it's part of our daily lives, but be aware of that is gonna be probably a, a, a big difference in, in the things that we do. This is a more general approach. I mean, it's not only about data or technological results or even policies, it's about our daily lives. And, and if we take a closer uh, view to, to how we conduct or the things that we view as normal uh, probably are normal for us, but not for the people that you have next to you. Uh, maybe we can see things in a different way. And on that topic of, of normalcy, in addition to thinking about our biases and our own assumptions that creep into the data and the algorithms that we make when we're talking about the default perspective in society, mm-hmm. which you highlighted as uh, you know, men from the global, global north, often white, the reason that they are the default perspective in society and in our data is because they're the ones who are collecting that data. They're the ones who are writing those algorithms. So it's just another example, too, of the importance of having more marginalized communities, people with different experiential ways of knowing coming in and being a part of that data collection, data analysis to hedge against those collective blind spots that people from similar backgrounds have. So it's a great point that you brought up there. Yeah, and again, in many cases, we are not gonna solve all the problems and include all the voices, but we need to be aware that the more the merrier, to put it in a way, uh, try to include the more we can. And again, when we do that, if we are thinking about, I don't know, like decision uh, policy design, or we are talking about tech solutions design, it, it doesn't really matter at the end, the type, of sol- the type of solution that we are trying to think. But in the process, we need to think about the people we are trying to affect with it, whatever the, the solution might be. And include them in the conversation. And again, not thinking about, like for example, asking their opinion at the end when you have the solution there, say, what do you think about this? I mean, and you you have a whole group of people or diverse group of people asking for opinion. You have to try to find a way to include them by design, I mean, at the beginning, because if not, it's just a consultation, but it's not really including more voices in the design. And again, in many cases, this 
kind of solutions are even done with the best of intentions. I mean, it's not that uh, somebody is trying to hurt in some group in particular or, or something like that, that might happen, but it's not often the case. In many cases, when designing policies or tech solutions, if we are not including the people or the voices of the people uh, that you are trying to benefit or at least not to hurt, in many cases, you can do the opposite for, I mean, just to, to give you an example, I mean, I'm thinking about some of the examples that I, I listened to when discussing gender-based violence. There are examples of that, of safe places maps and that were shared, I mean, broadly without thinking about the consequences that might bring to not only the, the potential victims, but also the people that were running those safe places. And again, this was done with the best of intention, trying to provide more spaces for more potential victims. But at the same time, you are putting at risk everything because you were not thinking about the damages that that could cause. So if you ask the potential victim or if you ask the potential beneficiary or something that you are thinking, probably those things can be avoided or at least mitigated. In that sense, I mean, also when we are thinking about participatory processes for data, to design standards, for policies, we need to think about how we include these people, uh, like women here probably have experienced it, but are we inviting them at the beginning or is a last minute add-on? What are the roles? I mean, are, are they invited to be included or, or as a token? And I, I'm saying this because it happened to, to me uh, many times, I mean, like that. You are the gender quote uh, in some panels or sessions or whatever. I mean, like uh, that usually happens, sadly. Uh, so being aware when you do that to think about it in the design, in the, at the initial stage of the processes thinking about it, how you invite these people, who are these people, and also thinking about something that might seem obvious, but it's not. Like, for example, women should not be the only ones talking about gender. People of color and people from the global south should not be the only ones talking about race, because, I mean, they are not the ones in general causing the, the discrimination and the harm in the first place. So we need all the voices possible uh, when we are thinking about <clears throat> policies, data, standard tech solutions, or any other tool that potentially could harm or benefit a part of the population or the whole population. So in that sense, uh, thinking about who is at the table, where are the roles, and in that sense, I mean, thinking about roles, it, it is pretty important. For example, I mean, just to give you a, a brief example, we were doing an analysis a few years ago on a feminist uh, open government approach, also thinking about the inclusion of women or groups of women in open government roundtables. And if you look at the numbers, they look okay. I mean, in many cases, I mean, there were like four countries in Latin America, they look okay. But then if you look closer to the roles those women were playing, that makes a difference because in many cases, the ones that were making the decisions were not the women, or at least not in the, the same amount uh, of women. And they were assisting somebody else that was making the decision. And it's even bigger, this gap, if you go outside capital cities, at least for this particular uh, research, that was the case, that probably in capital cities, the equation was closer to, to being an equal 
participation. But if you move outside those spaces, the difference starts to, to raise. And, and again, I mean, the numbers could be okay, but the roles are completely different. So it's not only important to think about the numbers that you have, I don't know, let's say 50%, 50% of this and that, but what are these people doing in your process? Uh, how are you inviting them to, to collaborate? And, and another example I could think about, and please stop me because I can go on and on. <laughs> please stop me whenever you want. But just one last brief example is about inclusion of women in public contracting. There were many experiences in, in I'm talking about the Latin America because that's the, the, the area we, we research on. But in some cases, there were many women or businesses led by, by women included, but they were in a particular area. When we are talking about services, like for example, catering services, uh, clean services, and those kind of things. And I mean, you've seen these people or these women working in those areas, providing services to the, to the estate in, in, in those areas. But when you go to, for example, technology or those kind of things, the equation is completely different. So. Again, the numbers maybe in the in overall, uh, in some cases could be okay, but you also need to look closer and see what these people are doing and, and how they are providing, in the case that a part participatory process, how they are providing their voices. If it's just a token or it's really that they are invited to let everybody know what they think. Very well said. Thanks again, Silvana, for joining us today. Thank you all. If you enjoyed today's episode, you're going to love our Invisible Women book club series. To learn more, click the registration link in the show notes. To stay up to date on Data Feminism Network events, check out our website at www.datafeminismnetwork.org. If you're a fan of the show, follow us on Instagram at Data Feminism Network and on Twitter at Data Fem Network. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, where we post event updates and share job opportunities related to data equity and inclusion. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode on why feminism needs men and men need feminism with Michael Flood.